We hope you are enjoying our expanded podcast schedule. For the month of July, we have something new for our members. Each month, members who successfully answer our bonus content quiz will be entered for a chance to win a pair of AirPods Pro. To participate, you must have access to the bonus sections of the podcasts. Members also receive an ad-free listening experience, an evening newsletter, an invitation to join the DSR Slack community, and more. Best of all, if you become a member in the month of July, you'll receive 50% off the normal membership price. Visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code fireworks at checkout. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and code fireworks. Thank you for your support. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Mark Palamaropoulos, and this is DSR's Spy Show. Today, I am very happy to welcome as my guest, Mr. James Lawler, uh, one of the greats uh, at CIA, a 25-year career as, a, as an operations officer, um, job category that, that I had as well. Although he was a hell of a lot better at it than me, he was a master recruiter, and we'll talk about that today. He was an expert on counterproliferation. Um, he was head of the team that took down the AQ Con network, and he is a an author of several books, which are, are getting some uh, really significant attention. And I will uh, I, I read actually Jim a quote on Amazon um, and someone who was reviewing your book, and he said a case officer wrote this book. And if I ever see that, I'm reading it. But uh, a great honor to have you here today. This is going to be a hell of a lot of fun. We have a lot to talk about. But uh, you know, you were one of the one of the greats. Uh, at the agency, someone when they when they mention your name, everyone kind of nods their head and, and understands you're dealing with with one of the titans. So thanks for coming on the show. Thank you very much, Mark. I appreciate your gracious introduction. Is that strange, by the way, when someone says all those laudatory things uh, about? I've, I always find that it's that's a that's a you know you kind of sit back and you say, "Come on, I, I still go shopping at Giant, and you know I got to get my car yeah. taken in." It's it's, it's it's difficult to respond to something like that. Yeah, it's great. It sounds wonderful. But I think most of us were taught not to be boastful, not to be prideful, not to, uh, you know, yeah, I mean, it, I, I'm, it's much better that you're saying that than you're saying, you know, Mad Dog, he was a real jerk. <laughs> so, no, But, you know, one of the things that's, that's interesting about you is that you not only, were you, you know, were you a great uh, intelligence officer, great operations officer, but you were a, a fantastic manager and you're also someone who cared about your people. And so... Um, I think that's that's something that you know, uh, as as we all get kind of long in the tooth and look back at our careers, um, you don't find a lot of people who had those kind of traits, who were good to their folks, who were great at the job, um, who really got it uh, uh, all together. But you were you were one of them. And let me let me just jump in as we uh, kind of go over a couple of the subjects today about an issue that I think is not getting enough attention, and that's the Iranian nuclear program. And, and as I mentioned in our in our introduction, you were on, you were and are an expert on counterproliferation. But, you know, with with obviously the, the the JCPOA, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, I always try to get that right. I don't think half the media probably can't even don't even know what that means. But with uh, obviously that being signed several years ago, and then President Trump um, uh, taking us out of that, 
and now a rumored agreement of sorts that, uh, where the U.S. and Iran might come back to the negotiating table. Um, this is really important for not only the region, but for the world, because it goes to the fundamental question is, how do we prevent Iran from getting a nuclear weapon? And so with your background, all you know about, uh, about Iran and their program, what are your thoughts on this? Well, I'm very concerned, as I'm sure um, a lot of American people are, and certainly a lot of our allies in the Middle East and in Europe are, are concerned as well. We do not need a nuclear-armed Iran. Now, am I, am I really frightened that Iran is going to use those weapons against Israel? I don't really think so. The mullahs may be people that I, whom I detest, but they're not stupid, and they know that Israel is going to have a hundred times as many weapons as they do. So I, yeah, of course, I'm always concerned about Israel, but not in the sense that the Iranians are going to use the weapons against Israel. What I'm really concerned about is that this is going to set off an arms race in the Middle East that the Emiratis, the Turks, the Saudis, the others around Iran will think, well, damn it, if the Iranians have a nuclear weapon, so do we. And once that happens, then it, the chances of either intentional or accidental detonation of a nuclear weapon just goes up logarithmically. And that is frightening, very, very frightening. Uh, I was a cautious supporter of the JCPOA back when that was concluded in the uh, Obama administration. I always think that it's better, as Churchill used to say, it's better to jaw-jaw than war-war. And I thought that if we you know, basically go outside of the JCPOA, which is what the Trump administration did, then that could easily drive them to the goal that we all detest. The, the goal being that they may decide, well, what have we got to lose? We'll go to a nuclear weapon. So I don't, I haven't seen any real easy answers to this. I think we, uh, talking is great. I think we need to negotiate. Frankly, I'd love it if we could somehow normalize the relations with Iran. We used to have a great relationship with Iran before the Mullahs came in, before Khomeini and Khamenei came in. And I would, you know, there's no reason. We have so many Iranian Americans here that are such vibrant uh, contributors to our society. And I think the Iranian people would love, most of them would love to have a normalization of relations with the United States. And so if, if, if I would maybe my prayers would be that somehow we could normalize relations with Iran. We're not trying to dominate Iran. I, I think that would be the great solution. But I'm fearful that through hard headedness and belligerence that we could, in essence, drive them to the very goal that we don't that we that we're scared of of them getting a nuclear weapon. And ultimately, I know you have said in the past that you know that a military option probably be the last option. I'm not sure that a military option at this point would work. Right, Jim. You know, the, one of the things that, that I think that uh, uh, we have to keep in mind that there's so many aspects of this, both from what can work, you know, diplomacy versus military action, also politics as well. So even on a good day, if, for example, uh, the U.S. and Iran could come to an agreement, um, does President Biden have the political capital to actually, you know, in essence, sell this to the American people? The Republicans will, I, I think, attack him quite mercilessly, um, you know, perhaps with justification, perhaps not. But there's there's I think there's lots of things that are going against this as well. But you raise something that uh, that I always kind of come back to when I talk to, to friends in, in the region. Um, and these are not necessarily former intelligence officers like us, um, uh, but they're 
there are individuals who I trust who are, who are tied into uh, certainly the Gulf states. And, you know, one of the things that, that they come back to quite often is is almost, in their view, the inevitability of a military conflict. There is no other option because the Iranians are not to be trusted. Um, uh, uh, and uh, at the end of the day, Israel is going to have a big vote on this uh, as well. So I guess the question for you is, do you think military confrontation on this is inevitable? And if not, let's let's jump in there right after you give me your opinion on that and talk about what's the what's the intelligence community's role? Because, of course, there's a long history, as you've written about in your in your fiction books uh, about uh, U.S. And, and allied covert action against the program. I guess I'm a I'm a uh, perennial optimist. I don't think that a military uh, the military option is inevitable. Um, it may occur. And it may, people may be driven to that. I mean, realistically, I think if there is a military option that's exercised, it won't be us, that, that we will not be the ones to exercise it. It will probably be the Israelis, uh, much as they did against the Syrian reactor, uh, El-Kabar. Um, you know, I don't know if you recall, Mark, but I was amused at the time. I'd already retired. I had no privileged information on this. But I remember our director at the time put out this congratulatory note uh, congratulating us on the destruction of this Syrian reactor, and I thought, wait a moment, didn't he? Shouldn't he have sent that note to Tel Aviv? I mean, we didn't do anything. They discovered it. They penetrated it. They then uh, bombed it. All we did was step aside. Maybe we provided a little signals intelligence, but we did nothing but just stand back and let them do it. So <laughs> we really didn't very little. Um, maybe we confirmed their suspicions. But it was their spies that discovered it, and it was their brave pilots that bombed it. So maybe that's what will happen next time. Although the Iranians are not stupid. They saw what happened there. None of their facilities are above ground. Um, I just think it, I think the military option, frankly, is kind of unrealistic. So I have a big smile on my face now if, uh, you know, <laughs> if listeners could see this because how can I say this without getting trouble? I was I was certainly in the region at the time um, uh, uh, when this happened, perhaps in that uh, in Syria itself. And as a matter of fact, this to me, when the Israelis came to us with uh, that they had uh, uncovered a reactor in or a reactor being built in Syria, that's a pretty big intelligence lapse by the United States. And so. Uh, yeah, but but Jim, you know, you don't ever underestimate the IC's ability to congratulate ourselves for a great victory and a big and we, have, back, we, have had some, we have had some great victories, but that wasn't one of them. Right, of course. <laughs> that wasn't one of them. Um, but, you know, but but I think that, that well, let, let's move to then that second part. What about um, things that, that can be done, you know, uh, almost in, what do you call it, the hybrid warfare space in the gray zone? Uh, you know, do you think Israel and perhaps the United States um, are contemplating once again some kind of actions like this, where, where it's not obviously an overt strike, um, but it's also a recognition that diplomacy has failed and that maybe there's some things uh, uh, that we can do that can degrade the program. Do you think that's that's still an option? I, I do. I mean, I in my operations, my counterproliferation operations, uh, a lot of people ask for a distinction. What's nonproliferation versus counterproliferation? Well, nonproliferation is basically you're just trying to halt things where they are. Counterproliferation is where you push them back through some some covert means or overt means. And uh, a lot of my operations uh, against various nuclear weapons states, including Iran, consisted of that kind of counterproliferation, 
of um, getting into supply lines, of you know right. doing things that would inhibit, uh, destroy, uh, basically inhibit their ability to produce enough fissile material. That's the nuclear guts of the bomb, either uranium-235 or plutonium. Inhibit that production, mess it up, sabotage it, do everything, every means possible other than an outright act of war to try and stop it. And all the time, we have to continue to get intelligence sources inside of these programs. Uh, now, you, you know, you were a great case officer. I know you by reputation. And maybe, maybe I feel a little bit like a hammer and all I see are nails. But I honestly want more sources inside of the Iranian nuclear weapons program, the North Korean nuclear weapons program, and everybody else out there who is an adversary of the United States so that we can, if we reach an agreement with Iran, let's say we do, I hope we do, but then we need sources to verify. You know, President Reagan said, trust but verify. I believe that. We need to have those sources inside these programs that say, if the Iranians agree to suspend their enrichment past light enrichment, which is for a peaceful nuclear reactor, if they agree to do that, and if we lift sanctions, then we need to basically verify that what they're saying is true, and they don't have the nightmare scenario, which I posited in my first book, that they agree to it, but then they have an ace in the hole, a covert program hidden away somewhere. And I ask myself sometimes, Mark, you know, what would I do if I were an Iranian? And that's probably what I'd do. They live in a tough neighborhood. They really do. They're surrounded by uh, predominantly Sunni countries, which, you know, I know they've had a rapprochement supposedly with Saudi Arabia. I doubt that that thing's worth anything, frankly. I mean, I'm, I'm very skeptical that that will last. But, uh, you know, th they live in a tough neighborhood. I could see where they would be compelled to do that as long as they feel like the United States, Great Britain, France, Germany, other countries are their hostile enemies, and especially Saudi Arabia is a hostile enemy. Um, so that's that's kind of my thoughts on that. No, I, I, I think you just gave a, a tremendous kind of uh, a, a nod to the importance of the intelligence community um, and how our former colleagues um, at, at CIA are going to be counted on. Because you're 100 percent right. If there is an agreement uh, uh, and that's a that's a policy decision, um, they're going to turn to the intelligence community to see if it is being upheld by the Iranian side. And that that necessitates that we have sources. We have agents within the Iranian uh, security apparatus of the nuclear program. Um, and that kind of brings me to, to kind of the next next part of, of our discussion. And, you know, again, this is to, to embarrass you a little bit, but you really are considered one of the great recruiters um, uh, of the modern age at, at CIA. You received the Trailblazer Award. You received the Donovan Award, which is given by the Deputy Director of Operations, uh, the Human Collector of the Year Award. And so, you know, I, I think that, you know, it, it would it would help all of us to kind of understand what was... Um, or what are, are kind of your theories, your views on recruitment operations? Um, what made you a great recruiter, particularly of, of hard targets, of really tough adversaries? Um, and and let me just throw one kind of one one piece in here is when I in my book that I wrote uh, about about handling agents, recruiting agents, I said it was not a psychology one hundred and one class; it was a psychology five hundred and one class. And I bet you'd agree with that as well. So. So for one of the great recruiters um, of our time, Jim, please uh, give our listeners some thoughts on, on really what is a core, core function of our old trade. 
Well, thank you, Mark. I, I made a list a few years ago of what I consider to be the keys to success for any recruiter. Uh, and I say the first quality is curiosity. A friend of mine once said, Jim, you know, I think what makes you so good at recruiting is you're a naturally curious person. And I am. If I hadn't been a case officer, I would have loved to have been either a psychologist or a psychiatrist because I just enjoy talking to people and finding out what makes them tick. Then I think the second quality is a keen listening ability. I teach a lot of courses in the intelligence community to CIA case officers, DIA case officers, to FBI special agents, and I tell them, you never recruit somebody when you're in transmit mode. You recruit people when you're in listen mode, and by listening to people, you'll find out what it is in their lives that is stressful. We don't recruit happy people. I never recruited a happy person. I recruited people who were stressed out. I think the third quality, and this is very important, is having extreme empathy. If I want to recruit somebody, I increase my chances a thousandfold. If I can get inside their head and understand the stress that they're under and maybe even take on some of that pain and find out, you know, be genuinely concerned and empathic towards them. The fourth quality, patience. Our headquarters, unfortunately, is all too often wanting to get that recruitment, to make this operation. And, you know, we don't, we don't really, human beings don't work like that. I've worked one target for 11 years before I recruited him. In the first 10 and a half years, nothing was wrong with his life that I could see. But in the 11th year, his marriage had fallen apart. Uh, the regime and his country had been changed and his ethnic group was no longer the predominant ethnic group. And so everything was flying apart. And he wrote me a, an email. He said, Jim, he said, you know, I'm working seven days a week, almost 24 hours a day. And it doesn't matter how hard I work because I can never go past a certain point, my grade that I am right now, because I'm not the right ethnic group anymore. And then he asked the key question. He said, how can people who are treated like that give allegiance to their country? And so that's like, come recruit me. And I did. I, I met him in another country. It took me 30 seconds to recruit him. And he said, you know, now I have something to believe in. He says, I'm part of your team. And that's how, why people, when they, when they go through this, the people that I recruited, you know, I'm asking them to do something which many people would consider to be antisocial, you know, me, the sociopath. I'm asking them to commit treason, to betray a trust. And yes, I am. I'm there manipulating them. I'm exploiting that. But they rationalize this by saying, by believing, and I get them to believe this, that they're now part of my team. They're not betraying anything. They were betrayed first. Often, the people I recruited were seeking revenge. They felt like they were betrayed, and they were just evening the score. The next quality is, I think, persistence. I recall towards the end of the Cold War, I pitched a, a communist uh, intelligence officer, and he never said no. In fact, I could see him struggling with it. But like an idiot, I was leaving that country in the next two or three days, and I didn't go back and hit him again the next day. I was not persistent. He was very close, very close. And he could see me as that life ring that he probably should grasp. But I did not close the deal. And I, 
you know, and I chalk that up as a, a near miss. I think the sixth quality is creativity, being creative. We can all use more creativity and, you know, being imaginative and listening to these people. Number seven, I would say, is becoming a careful observer of stressors in people's lives. And in a sense, becoming a student of human frailty and finding out exactly what is it that they need. And then I would be a shapeshifter. I'd become what they need. The eighth one, the eighth quality, and this is harsh, it's what I call ruthlessness or extreme focus. By that, I mean never forgetting why you're doing this. You're not just friends with this person. You're doing this for national security reasons. And I think sometimes when I see a case officer who's rather mediocre, there's usually one or two reasons. One is they fear rejection, that when they pitch this person, the person would reject the pitch. And I tell my students, I say, if you've never had a recruitment pitch rejected, you didn't pitch enough people. You need to keep keep at it. And secondly, uh, they fear that they would hurt this person's feelings and that this would somehow tarnish their relationship. Well, that's part of it. You've just got to do it. You've got to convince them that this is in their best interests. I had a boss on one of my uh, stations and he said, Jim, you know, you're not doing these people any favors when you recruit them, meaning that these people are doomed. And I told him, I said, Larry, if I honestly thought that, I couldn't do it. I couldn't in good conscience do that. I would not ever deliberately jeopardize someone. Now, I can't guarantee that I can protect them all, but I guarantee you this, the CIA will go to hell and back to basically stand by the people that it recruits. It'll do that for its officers and it'll do that for its covert sources. And I've seen it happen that we would go to hell and back to try and rescue somebody. If we give a guarantee, then we are going to come and do our damnedest to try and rescue them. The ninth quality is having a powerful or a persuasive personality. And I think I'm a rather quiet person. I have a soft voice. Sometimes uh, my assets, one, one asset in particular said, Jim, when you're talking to me, it's like my brain is in a warm waterbed. And I became their, I became their therapist. I'm not, I'm not particularly large. My voice is not real deep, but it's very soothing. And so sometimes this is, they, they would tell me anything. And that's what I want them to do. I want them to tell me everything about themselves. I mean, who, who doesn't enjoy somebody who shows genuine concern for someone and will let down their hair and look forward to that next meeting and hopefully looks forward to stealing some more intelligence from me and the United States of America. And finally, the last one is a quality that a lot of people, including a lot of my fellow case officers, don't understand. And that's what I call the metaphysics, the metaphysics of recruiting, that I think that there are a small number of case officers, maybe less than fewer than 5%, who have some kind of ability we can't explain that allows them to link in to the mind of a target. And it's almost, I envision like a mental, invisible mental hook that when you and I are in this flow, when I'm doing my recruitment pitch, there could be explosions going off around and neither you nor I would even be aware of that because I've got this psychological hook into you and 
It is something that I'm causing you to listen. It's almost it's past hypnosis, although one of my students, a deep cover officer, thought that I was using the same techniques as Milton Erickson, who invented hypnotherapy back in the uh, mid-20th century. Maybe I'm using some of those techniques unconsciously. I don't know. But I think it transcends that. And I've had a couple of neuroscientists talk to me about that before. And they thought I was using trickery, you know, magic meaning sleight of hand or trickery. And I said, no, I just think that myself, maybe a few other case officers have this metaphysical ability. And I'm using the term metaphysics to mean something we cannot explain at the moment. But the ability to link into somebody's mind and to pull them into our orbit and get them to do things that they might otherwise not do. So that's a long-winded explanation of the qualities that I think I think I have and I think the best recruiters have. I've seen this. I've taught thousands of students in the intelligence community and a few, a select few. In fact, I can think of three. The three best I've ever had, one was a CIA non-official cover officer. Another was a female DIA case officer named Shawnee Delaney. And the, four, the third one was an ethnic Korean female FBI special agent. And she, all three of these people were absolutely wonderful. It's, it's, I, I love to see a great case officer go into that pitch. It's like watching a gifted athlete who's in the last 50 yards of their sprint and suddenly they go into their kick and it's like they're bending space and time. And it's just absolutely gorgeous. Jim, I, I love this. You have given us a masterclass on on recruiting. This could we could talk about this for hours. I think that you know, my, my, I agree with so much of what you said. I always felt uh, both recruiting, recruitment, and, and handling uh, 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 agents was was deeply personal, um, and not only for the agent, who of course you might be the only outlet, but also for the case officer as well, um, because because ultimately you have someone's life in your hands, and that's a pretty weighty and heavy responsibility. So now at this point in the podcast is where we have to say goodbye to our guests who are not yet subscribers. If you want to listen to the rest of this podcast and to all of our other shows in full, just go to the dsrnetwork.com and click on membership. It's only $5 a month and it brings you a lot of great bonus content. So if you're not a subscriber, we hope you will be soon. And if you are one, stand by. We'll be back in a moment. <laughs> 